sports, and then beat the bezoar ceremony. Get hit.
Welcome to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, I'm so pleased to have Jennifer Egan here, sitting in the studio here at WCBN. <laughs> Jennifer, thanks for being here. My pleasure. <laughs> We're taping the show. It's the 4th of October, 2011, and, um, and, and Jennifer, you're in town. You're doing readings. You're giving a talk here, meeting with students, um, and we'll be talking and hearing a little bit from your Pulitzer Prize winning <laughs> book, A Visit from the Goon Squad. Goon Squad. Um, thank you so much for being here. Making... I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> Anytime. We'll just, we'll just look at this as part one of a continuing conversation, um, hopefully. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, and so before I go any further, I'll read the short bio from the back of A Visit from the Goon Squad. Um, and then we'll go from there. Jennifer Egan is the author of The Keep, Look at Me, The Invisible Circus, and the story collection Emerald City. Her stories have been published in The New Yorker, Harper's Magazine, GQ, Zoetrope, All Story, and Plowshares. And her nonfiction appears frequently in The New York Times Magazine. She lives with her husband and sons in Brooklyn. Um, and perhaps this is actually the copy of the book before. It is, isn't it? Since it's and it's the hardcover. It's before you were awarded the 
the National Book Critics Circle Award <laughs> and the Pulitzer Prize. That is true. Yes, that's the uh, the hardcover version. And in fact, we don't even call it a novel or a story collection or anything on that cover, if you'll notice, because I didn't know whether people would accept it as a novel, and I didn't want to be. Ju- I didn't want it to be judged a failure because it failed to meet expectations of what a novel would be, and they didn't want to put stories on because they thought no, you know, no, stories don't really sell. <laughs> so we settled on nothing. <laughs> Which I think was probably a mistake from a marketing standpoint, but how could no? What how could there be a mistake? I mean, there can't be. Well, maybe that's what people should just forget all labels. I think you are starting a new trend for. Well, the reason I think it was a mistake. You've got the title, which is a little bit of an odd title: "Visit from the Goon Squad," a picture of of part of a guitar. And then no designation, novel or story collection. And so what some readers told me was that they thought it was a nonfiction book about music. (laughs) So it may be that we didn't quite send the signals that we wanted to. And in fact, interestingly, it actually sold very poorly when it first came out. It was really tanking, actually. And I think that may have been part of the reason. Um, But then it had some really good luck and and that kept it kept it moving over a long period. Jennifer, what was that luck then? Because that is interesting because it's not about... Sometimes it's about a story, like the, a novel, a, a story, um, finding its place, that it's art, it's beautiful, but then it goes out in the world and sometimes, because how can it be that at one moment something is, is tanking and in the next moment people finally are able to piece something together in their head and award it such a, the high honors? Well, I mean, books can get high honors when they haven't sold at all, of course. Uh, This one actually started to sell before that. And I think part of it was that people had been told it was good. It had a lot of high-profile reviews. But it's one of those books that's very hard to describe. And so even when people had been told that it was good, they found they didn't really want to read it, (laughs) which I can really understand in a way. I mean, I noticed it when I was working on the book, and people would say, so what's it about? And I would start to tell them, and I would see their eyes start to glaze over, and I thought, oh oh, no, this is really going to be a problem. It's, you know, we live in a world where, you know, if you can't describe what you're doing in a sentence, you have a problem. People don't have much time. They just want to get the gist of it and and either jump or walk away. A lot of them were walking away at the beginning. But then it hit, it was on a lot of end-of-the-year lists, you know, best of the year. And I think that reminded people, oh, yeah, that was that book that everyone, you know, that, that I read a good review of, but I didn't want to read it. Uh, maybe I will, finally. Uh, so, so, so it started to sell a little more. More at that point. And then when it won the prizes, it, it really did much better. So it, it had a, all of that is very good luck. You know, you you know, winning prizes is a lot about having external forces line up in one's favor. And uh, I, I feel very lucky that that happened. And I, I, it almost sounds like the planets. Well, you never know. <laughs> I don't tend to think so much in terms of planets, but, you know, I certainly know that it wasn't something I did. So call it what you want. Some, something, <laughs> something somewhere lined up in my favor, and I will be grateful for the rest of my life. But it is really something you did because you made it. You're the, you're the maker of this. Uh... I did make it, but I and I'm proud of it. I don't mean to denigrate it, but I, but I think that, you know, there's some way in which it seems to have been a book that people wanted to read at this moment. And that's not something the writer has a lot of control over. Because remember, we st- we finished the books a year before they're published. So you have no sense of what the culture will want a year later, much less at any time. How did you decide to write it? Because you said that when you tried, it almost sounds like when you were in the project itself, Jennifer, you were even, um, you were talking to people about it, which sometimes 
may be risky because you see their eyes glaze over or so and you think about what am what am I doing but but how did you decide that this is how you wanted to to play with time and connect characters across time or was it just something you felt like you needed to do because that's how the story the images were coming to you or I pretty I I worked on it pretty much exactly the same way I always work which is that I write by hand I write fiction by hand as a journalist I write everything on a computer but I write by hand very instinctively and rather unthinkingly hopefully I don't want to think as I'm writing I want the writing to be out ahead of my conscious thought process. I want it to surprise me almost as if I'm reading it. And I, I, in a way, I don't know what I'm writing as I write it. My handwriting is totally illegible. And so it's all a little mysterious until I have a draft and then I read it and I say, hmm, what does it seem like this could be? And then I try to, I make very systematic outlines of how to try to change it and improve it and get the result I want. In this case, I didn't write it as one big draft. I wrote it in pieces. And once I, initially I thought I was just writing some stories for fun, but once I realized that they fit together into one book, I thought, okay, what seems interesting and fun about this? And then I tried to, I basically identified three rules to guide me as I went forward. One was that each chapter would be about a different person. One was that each chapter would be technically different from all of the others, have a different mood and tone and feel and atmosphere, almost as if each chapter were part of a different book. And third, each one had to stand completely on its own and not need anything around it. And after, and and I knew pretty much from the beginning that that this the the pieces were circling time and and certainly the music industry. But it didn't come to me for a little while that of course what I was writing was a concept album. You know, it's a story in pieces that sound really different from each other and hopefully collide and contrast with each other in ways that are interesting. You would never want to listen to an album in which every Everything sounded the same. And so I, I guess I really wanted to make the literary equivalent of that. And, and when did that in the process, when you were systematically shaping and crafting, like when did you have that epiphany? Because that seems like quite the moment. Well, there were. I think it came to me actually sort of gradually. I mean, there was a point where I thought, I'm going to have a part one and a part two. And I thought, well, why not an A side and a B side? So in a way, it came that way. And I, it, in a way, it's also an homage to the way people used to buy music and really don't anymore, where people would be forced to buy into a total musical vision. And often the songs that I ended up loving best on an album were the ones that I'd never heard on the radio. So so, you know, that's, of course, harder and harder for an artist to get a customer to do. You know, we tend to buy in an atomized way, which for a writer is sort of horrifying. It's like writing a novel and people only buy certain chapters. Uh, so I guess I love the idea of, um, of of saluting that rather imperiled form of the total artistic uh, vision um, of, a, of a, a story told in music. And you can tell that music is so important to you. So that'll be interesting to see the tracks that we're infusing into the show. Um, because do, are you writing? You said that um, I don't have the, the note in front of me, but the uh, the Sideways band, that song informed 
uh, the, there's a chapter that's written in PowerPoint, and I had a lot of trouble writing it. It's called, um, well, I, of course, I, it was hard to write fiction in PowerPoint. I think it, that that will always be true. It's called Great Rock and Roll Pauses, and it's about a, a, a sister narrating. It's her journal told in PowerPoint form, and she's narrating a lot of family tension around her brother, who has a kind of Asperger's obsession with the pauses in rock and roll songs. And I, I just found it difficult. You know, it was just a challenge to write fiction effectively in PowerPoint. Point. Interestingly, the song that I put on repeat for four hours on my iPod and walked around Brooklyn listening to was not one of the songs with pauses. And those were important, too, but they weren't the ones that helped me get the chapter written. That was a song by a group called Let's Go Sailing, and it's called Sideways. And there's something about the feeling of it, it has a young, hopeful feeling to it. And it, it seemed somehow for me when I would listen to it, I would think that's the feeling I want in this chapter of this 12-year-old trying through her writing to give coherence to her somewhat struggling but basically very loving family. Um, sadly, I can no longer listen to Sideways by Let's Go Sailing because I jump out the nearest window if it is turned on. That's what happens when you listen to a song for four hours. But I got the result I needed. <laughs> and so that's what it took like in the production part of that, Jennifer. You literally, you walked and you listened. And when you're doing that, is it somehow that you're also structuring moments in your head or do you have like a notebook and a pen and you're also writing or is it just the kinetic the walking the music collision you know that's a good question i'm not sure exactly how it, i wasn't um i wasn't really planning things i was more trying to feel something and then i would stop periodically and i guess i would return to my draft it wasn't it was more like some sort of cure I was taking. And then I returned to my desk feeling cured and ready to move on. <laughs> but it wasn't like I actually wrote it listening to that per se. I just wanted to infuse myself with the feeling of it and use that to power me to the end. And, oh, which make, oh, sorry. Go well, on. I was going to say, I, I also did listen to a lot of songs with pauses, and that was an important part of writing that chapter. And I should also say that on my website, jenniferegan.com, I have a color version of that chapter, which looks quite terrible on e-readers, um, in which I have 10-second snippets of sound. There's a soundtrack to the chapter in which you can listen to each of the pauses with the music around it. So that's kind of cool. That actually, that seems important, uh, the beauty of the web in that way. Yes, but Exactly. But the beauty of the book. <laughs> well, not, I had a lot of angry Kindle readers complaining that they had to buy the hardback to read the digital chapter, which does seem a little ironic. <laughs> I say take the fight to them, Jennifer. <laughs> I think that's great. And I, well, I love how with this, when you're, we're talking about the process, too, it's sort of the question I was asking you um, was ridiculous because you just you you had just said moments before that your way of making is that you don't want you're not planning ahead with the agenda you want to feel you want to be in the moment and be surprised so it makes sense that that's what you would be going for what's this what is this feeling yes in the in the generation of material that's really important ultimately i need to be very analytical to figure out how to improve what i'm doing but when i go back into the writing mindset i'm i'm not thinking too much i'm trying to just feel it well, that that is wonderful. Maybe we'll hear and we'll take a short break. And then when we come back, we'll hear a little bit of the writing. Sure. Keep, give people a sense. I mean, if you haven't read the book already, no, I shouldn't say that. But A Visit from the Goon Squad. Jennifer Egan is here in the studio today. We'll take a short break and we'll be right back and hear more.
Jennifer Egan here in the studio today. Thanks to to Liz. 
Liz Wasson for engineering for us. And thanks, Jennifer, for picking the great songs because we, we just had Iggy Pop representing um, a, a close <laughs> a, a close spirit of WCBN. <laughs> um, why is um, can you tell us a little bit why the passenger is is vital for this? Uh, a visit from the Goon Squad? Well, I loved that song and still do. But I think it, what it communicates to me, and I have absolutely no idea what Iggy Pop intended when he wrote it, but to me it really communicates that sense of being a witness, in a the, the idea of being a witness in a moving vehicle, not the driver, just the passenger watching the world outside the window. I don't know. Somehow I feel like that's kind of how I've always felt. Uh, and also I think it really captures in a way the feeling of, of being a teenager and trying to figure out how your your adult life is going to merge with that world out there. So it just it felt somehow like um, that, that song was really pretty basic to this book. It's part of its root system. Especially from the chapter, the safari chapter, with the young, the, the young woman character in that, I think, her feelings of... Not her when she tries to act on the dance floor, for example, they're they're very small ways, mm-hmm. and and she's not in control of and well and oh and I and I love I know that I'm speaking somewhat abstractly now how that chapter roams so that you know the life stories by the end of it as well. Yeah, um, yeah I was interested in trying to uh, jump forward in time and have the reader have the the present be infused with a, a pretty clear sense of what the future would would bring and see how that affects present day action unfolding. I wouldn't want to do that through a whole book, but for that one piece, since I was trying to find different ground rules for each chapter that would make them, you know, or stories, I should say, that required different, very strongly different ways of telling, that one um, seemed seemed right in that way. And, and safari means journey. So that's, you know, it, it kind of does bring us back to the passenger, actually. And when you were making these rules, I feel like I, I read somewhere, Jennifer, that you said, well, you're going to you, you made these constructs for the stories, but then you also felt like you had to break them. I did. I wasn't actually able to break them, which was frustrating. <laughs> I kept trying. I kept thinking rules were meant to be broken. And I would try to write a chapter from the same point of view that I had already written from, for example, but it always fell really flat. Interestingly, nothing was ever a close call. I either was able to meet all three of those criteria or generally none of them. The ones that didn't work, didn't miss by a hair. They really, really stank. And did did you re, did you rework it and just come at it from a different angle or did those just never make Make it into the the arc of the entire Didn't make story. It in. Yeah, cutting room floor. I had some quite a few interesting ideas that just never. I, I think the the real problem was that they didn't require interesting enough ways of being told to really stand out and and shine in the midst of everything else. So uh, yeah, there were definitely quite a few outtakes. Maybe I should. I, there were probably five. So yeah, it was there were there were there were some 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 miss, misses and some hits, but um, it was really a matter of finding stories that were different enough from each other that they they really sparkled in different ways and didn't feel familiar. And when you say something was just it was like a, a maybe the the telling of it when you said it was too bland or something was falling flat with it. Um, can you give an example of that 
in some way? Well, I can't really, I mean, without reading it, I mean, I, I guess, well, an example of how something can sound like a great idea and then not end up being a great idea, there's a boy named Rolf, and we know from the Safari chapter that he ends up committing suicide. But he's just a little kid in, in the Safari chapter, so I thought I would love to visit him in his adult life and see what he was like as a young man. I thought that was a, it seemed like a really reasonable thing to include in the book. So I had this idea that he moved to New York and he joined kind of an experimental theater group. And my concept of how the chapter would work was that it would be sort of like a production of this theater group with him in it. And I had the idea of even writing it in dramatic form, some of it. But nothing happened. I mean, I couldn't I couldn't make it live on the page. It was just really there was a feeling of a dead root the whole way through. And often the feeling I have as I'm doing that and it's not working is a sense that I'm that the material is no matter what I do, I don't seem to be able to get to it. I have to keep writing more and more and more, whereas ideally with with fiction of any sort and certainly fiction that's occurring in small pieces, there should be a sense of compression of of each thing resonating beyond itself rather than me rushing around and trying to cover more territory to sort of get to what I'm trying to get to. If I have that feeling of, of the material ballooning out of control, that's often a sign that it's just not working. And and this this technique with this book and the rules that you made for the stories, Jennifer, it, it almost seems to me that it's like the uh, an ultimate compression in a way. I think you're right because in a way the goal is to create this sense of time of a, the sweep of time passing in multiple lives, but without thousands of pages. I mean, my direct inspiration for this book was Proust's In Search of Lost Time, which is a many-volumed, many-thousand-paged book. It's a masterpiece. I love and how it, that's the inspiration for it. Oh, very much so. I mean, very directly. Like, I read that. And I had read some of it as a younger person, but I got kind of bored with all his ruminations about time. I just wanted the obsessive love part. <laughs> just give me Swan and Odette, and let's let's leave it at that. Um, but I returned to it later, actually, with a, re- a book group. Um, in our book group, we were reading mostly classics. What a brave book group. Yes, it took us like <laughs> six years. <laughs> I think we had five children among us in the years that we spent reading Bruce. Um, but I found myself thinking, you know, this is so powerful because it's explicitly about time and therefore really about radical change. And one of Proust's big focuses was the social hierarchy. So the fact that, you know, a prostitute could become an aristocrat is the kind of shock that is made possible by the passage of years. And that doesn't mean as much to us here in in this era. And yet, time brings these very drastic changes. And the number one change is that we get older, which is the one we really can't believe is ever going to happen. So I thought, how can I try to create that sense of sweep and, and you know, kaleidoscopic change in a totally, uh, I don't know, somehow an efficient, angular way that doesn't require the expenditure of thousands of pages? And that was really my goal going in. And do you think it could have, and you realized it, and, and it's a way of, I think what stays with you is this, or what, what's been haunting me is, is the, the conceptions of time and trying to feel it and, and s- apply how it stretches out and compresses in these different, and think about it in relation to others' lives who mm-hmm. I know, not just my own. So that's what I sort of am carrying around as I'm mulling over the different people who are 
connecting and disconnecting through the the novel uh, or stories or that's whatever why it is. I, that's why I didn't purposely say anything either, Jennifer, at the beginning. Well, I don't care. <laughs> I mean, I have no problem with it. It says novel on the cover of the paperback, and it was mostly reviewed as a novel. So I felt comfortable calling it that. And I, I don't really care too much about those labels. I just didn't want to prejudice anyone against it by calling it something that they might think it wasn't and therefore be disappointed. Um, but yes, you know, the sense of of lives intersecting over time is is so poignant. I mean, there's nothing like seeing a person you haven't seen in 20 years and just physically looking at how much they've changed and then also comparing whatever has or hasn't happened to them with that moment of complete promise, which is really what youth is or what the teenage years are. And so I just wanted to get give a sense of that in, in multiple lives kind of intersecting through the music industry and, and through music itself. And when it came to you, did it ever feel like... Um, because uh, let me phrase this, um, to me, it felt as if there were genuine connections and threads that were being discovered in, as you're meeting these people, did you, um, ever feel like you had to strong arm any of the characters? Cause to say, darn it, Lulu, you're going to come back and you're going to be connected to Alex and, you know, was, Mm -hmm. did it ever feel like that? Or was it something where... As the stories were occurring to you and or as you were feeling them, did it did they just appear? It was more the latter. I, I tried to strong arm some things, but often they just didn't work. Like I mean, the Rolf. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, there were things I was curious about and certain convergences that I would have liked to see, but they felt too contrived or I just couldn't make them work. You know, it, it might have been terrific, but it had to be terrifically written and I couldn't seem to pull that off. So usually, it, it, I mean, pretty much every convergence that happens f- happened pretty naturally. And um I felt like the danger with something like this is cuteness, a kind of, you know, gee, everyone ends up around the table together. And like I it's really a game. Wasn't, I wasn't interested in that. It seemed like tying things up with a ribbon. And that's not really how it works. You know, there are a lot of loose ends in the book. And it's a very open structure. I feel like I could return to some of these people. It's been sold to HBO as a series. So if they ended up doing it, which is always a long shot, you know, they might go well beyond the bounds of what I've done. And in fact, I shared my outtake stories with them. I figured I couldn't make anything out of this, but maybe you can. (laughs) So, you know, and all of that seems okay to me. You know, I think the book is the book. I don't feel like I would want to add anything to this particular trajectory, but there, it has a loose, open quality that is kind of like life itself. I mean, there, there is really no end until the big end. So even when we break away from a story, it doesn't mean that the story ends. Let's hear some of the story. Okay. I'm going to read the beginning of chapter... If you don't mind. (laughs) That was very abrupt. No, no. That's okay. (laughs) I'm going to read the beginning of chapter six called X's and O's. And um, just to say, we're going to be hearing about a, a guy who's living in New York, but we last saw him as a really sparkling, charismatic, uh, sort of rock star teenager. And his teeth definitely, they they remain to me as the sparkle. <laughs> well, we're, yeah, we're, there, he ends up with some, some dental issues. We're not going to get into no, those here. No, no. <laughs> okay, X's and O's. Here's how it started. I was sitting on a bench in Tompkins Square Park reading a copy of Spin I'd swiped from Hudson News, observing East Village females crossing the park on their way home from work and wondering, as I often did, how my ex-wife had managed to populate New York with thousands of women who looked nothing like her 
but still brought her to mind. When I made a discovery, my old friend Benny Salazar was a record producer. It was right in Spin magazine. A whole article about Benny and how he'd made his name on a group called The Conduits that went multi-platinum three or four years ago. There was a picture of Benny receiving some kind of award, looking a little out of bre- looking out of breath and a little cross-eyed. One of those frozen, hectic instants you just know has a whole happy life attached. I looked at the picture for less than a second, then I closed the magazine. I decided not to think about Benny. There's a fine line between thinking about somebody and thinking about not thinking about somebody, but I have the patience and the self-control to walk that line for hours days if I have to. After one week of not thinking about Benny, thinking so much about not thinking about Benny that there was barely room left in my brain for thoughts of any other kind, I decided to write him a letter. I addressed it to his record label, which turned out to be inside a green glass building on Park Avenue and 52nd Street. I took the subway up there and stood outside the building with my head back, looking up, up, wondering how high Benny's office might possibly be. I kept my eyes on the building as I dropped the letter into the mailbox directly in front of it. Hello, Benjo, I'd written. That's what I used to call him. Long time no see. I hear you're the man now. Congrats. Couldn't have happened to a luckier guy. Best wishes, Scotty Hausman. He wrote back. His letter arrived in my dented East 6th Street mailbox about five days later, typed, which I guess meant a secretary had done it, but I could tell it was Benny all right. Scotty, baby. Hey, thanks for the note. Where have you been hiding yourself? I still think of the dildo days sometimes. Hope you're playing that slide guitar. Yours, Benny, with his little wiggly signature above the typed name. Benny's letter had quite an effect on me. Things had gotten, what's the word? dry. Things had gotten sort of dry for me. I was working for the city as a janitor in a neighborhood elementary school and in summers collecting litter in the park alongside the East River near the Williamsburg Bridge. I felt no shame whatsoever in these activities because I understood what almost no one else seemed to grasp, that there was only an infinitesimal difference, a difference so small that it barely existed except as a figment of the human imagination, between working in a tall green glass building on Park Avenue and collecting litter in a park. In fact, there may have been no difference at all. Thanks, Jennifer. And I think by reading this, this section from chapter six, it's, it's great because what you, you've, what you're showing there, at least to me, is this great, you're inhabiting this voice of Scotty, um, just this new voice. And then there's a smoke and you're, and it's, you're with him. And then he's got this epiphany that of, of a big, of this moment where we all think there's not a separation between the people in the buildings, the people picking up the litter, but it's in there. So naturally that it doesn't feel heavy. Well, it's, you know, he's, he, a lot of his worldview is a kind of rationalization for the fact that he is actually a very marginal figure. And he's constructed this whole mental universe that explains and excuses the fact that he's out there collecting litter when other people are inside the buildings. And one of the, and of course, but this it could is, be Zen. 
too. Well, that's true. That's Actually, a, that's a perspective. <laughs> you know, it's funny. My my stepfather became a Buddhist later in his life, and he picked this up. It was published in GQ. This is actually a piece I had written earlier, and he read it without realizing that I had written it, which is so funny because he didn't look at the byline, and he thought it was a story about Buddhism about giving things up to get everything back, which is so funny because, you know, because he was always pushing Buddhism on me, I totally rejected it. And he would send me tapes. I would never listen to them. And then I said, what do you mean it's a Buddhist story? <laughs> he got to you. Like, he did. He must is have. Is he in the acknowledgments page? No. <laughs> <laughs> and so how did you guys find out? And then he must have gone back to see who wrote it. And then he was in. He went back and saw and he was astonished. So, um, yeah. So, it, 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 you know, it is it is in a way a story about that, about about being OK with with giving things up um, and and having that actually be a kind of um, fortification, a sort of feeling strength through giving things up. Or, or and moving them along because there's a moment that he has the business card that he uses nicely. Yeah, he gets Benny's business card and then he gives it to a kind of strung out rocker on the East River and hopes wishes him well. But this is not the end for Benny and Scotty. I mean, they have a difficult interaction in Benny's office after this, which you can probably imagine given the buildup on Scotty's side and his sort of derelict nature. Um, but but that's not it. They have a kind of surprising um, reconvergence much later in the book that that leads to good things for both of them. Yes. And it's not the first time we see Benny either, because he's one of the characters we meet in the first story. Right, Jennifer? Well, Did, yeah, we've met him. We've met him both um, after this point when he's actually having a lot of trouble with the music industry because he just has decided that um, digitization is is he equates it with the Holocaust, which I think is going a bit far. Uh, he feels that it is destroying all art forms that it touches. And he's really angry about it. Um, so we see him at that point for the first time but we also have seen the two of them as punk rock teenagers in the same band which um which benny alludes to in his note the flaming dildos a pretty terrible band <laughs> whose music i wrote <laughs> their their best song is called what the f <laughs> It's it's I love hearing this, Jennifer, because you can tell that when you do this, it's like serious play. It like is it's so fun. This yes. was really fun. They have not all been this fun, but this book was a lot of fun to write. Jennifer, it's been a lot of fun to talk with you, and I only wish we had more time. So I will just thank you once again for being here and talking today. I hope we meet again. Me too. Thanks for having me on the show. And you've been listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Jennifer Egan. Um, we've been talking about her latest, and I can't wait to see what's next. A visit from the Goon Squad. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Enter your four-digit code.
Downton, Downton, Down.
This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, October 19th, 2011. In Los Angeles, I'm Doreen Marina. Coming up, new U.S. figures show a record number of deportations as allegations of sexual assault in the immigration system broaden. Congress votes on increased safety for oil and gas pipelines, but some lawmakers say it's not enough. And we'll go to Bolivia, where indigenous marchers arrive in La Paz to protest a national highway that they say will destroy their territory. Those stories and more. First, this news. I'm Alice Olstein with headlines for FSRN. Thousands of Palestinian and Arab prisoners in Israel have called off their weeks-long hunger strike after reaching an agreement with Israeli officials to end the policy of solitary confinement. Ahmad Sadat, the leader of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, has been held in solitary confinement for the past three years. He was hospitalized this week after going 20 days without food. The prisoners say they will resume their hunger strike soon if the prison authorities don't implement the promised reforms. The practice of solitary confinement faces growing criticism from the international community. UN torture expert Juan Mendez is calling for a worldwide ban on long-term solitary confinement. He cited a new report that says keeping prisoners in isolation for more than 15 days causes mental damage and amounts to torture. I'm also expecting civil society organizations to see if we can abolish solitary confinement in its worst manifestations, but even in those where it is permissible, to establish clear safeguards and protections so that it doesn't end up constituting torture or cruel, inhuman, and degrading treatment. Mendez was himself detained and tortured during Argentina's military dictatorship in the 1970s. Turkey is launching military raids into northern Iraq after one of the deadliest attacks on its forces in nearly 20 years. Zach Brophy reports from Istanbul. A Kurdish separatist group killed at least 24 soldiers in a series of coordinated attacks early Wednesday morning. Militant